All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Welcome again to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 2, Supplemental Episode 3. Yes, if you're confused, we're going just a bit back in time, at least in terms of the chronology of our project here. But I was absolutely thrilled that Ben Slivka agreed to come on the podcast with us, because obviously at this point we've got plenty of oral histories relating to Netscape and the development of their web browser, but so far we've only spoken to a handful of people about Internet Explorer. And obviously Internet Explorer was every bit as vital to the development of the early web as Netscape and Navigator were, so I've been eager to get more background from the Microsoft side of the story. And who better than Ben Slivka, who was one of the godfathers of the Internet Explorer project at Microsoft. Ben was actually kind enough to come to my home to speak with me, and it's a bit of a funny story. In my research, I kept hearing how Ben was notorious for wearing Hawaiian shirts and shorts in almost any weather. So sure enough, on Halloween day, it was about 55 degrees here in Brooklyn, and so I go out on my stoop to try to keep a lookout for Ben to see when he shows up. And sure enough, here comes Ben walking down the sidewalk in a bright Hawaiian shirt and shorts. So I knew who I was looking for. Ben is such a great, fun guy, and he was generous and kind enough to give me several hours of his time recounting where Microsoft was as a company before Windows 95 and the web. And he brought along copious notes, so he was able to walk me and all of us through the entire development cycle of Internet Explorer from versions 1.0 through 4.0 and beyond. So if you're interested at all in the technological and feature development of the modern web browser, then you're unlikely to hear a better hour of conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Ben Slivka. Ben Slivka, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Brian, happy to be here. So I always like to start off with a little bit of the schooling. I know that you're a, a big Northwestern guy. Uh, you Go got, Cats! <laughs> you got your uh, your computer science degree at Northwestern um, early early 80s, right? Correct, yeah. So I grew up in Seattle. My first airplane flight was off to Chicago uh, for Northwestern in 1978. I did computer science and applied math undergrad. Uh, met and married my wife my senior year of college. Uh, spent a year at IBM in Poughkeepsie, New York back when it had 364,000 employees and was the computer company in the world. Uh, Came back, got a master's in computer science, and uh, based on my IBM experience, decided that mainframes were dead, mini computers would be next, 
And so uh, Lisa and I went off to Microsoft in 1985. They, the story that I've read about getting recruited or, or getting a job at Microsoft was that you sent a letter to any sir or madam at Microsoft looking for, for a job. Is that, is that true? Yes. Well, back in 1985, we didn't have email, really. Uh, there were some uh, very modest email services. So I sent snail mail letters to Apple and to Microsoft. Never heard back from, uh, from Apple. Um, heard back uh, from Microsoft. Uh, they wanted code samples, so I sent them some projects and uh, went out, uh, flew out, and interviewed on February 1st of 1985 and got a job offer at the end of my day of interviews. And who did you interview with? Do you remember? Um, a bunch of different people. The, the last person I interviewed was with Gordon Letwin, and he was employee number eight. If you look at that iconic photo of uh, those original Microsoft employees, he's the very sh- uh, dark-haired, shaggy, bearded guy with the, with the sunglasses. So uh, what are you hired on for? You're just general software, or did you have a expertise or anything like that? Well, they, uh, I ended up uh, starting in the operating system group, and um, so my, I had a lot of uh, experience uh, with computers going back to when I was 16. And uh, so I took a, a Fortran 4 programming class in high school. Uh, this was the, with an IBM 029 card punch that the, the chair of the math department had in his, um, in his room. And so back then you would punch up your Fortran uh, uh, program, one line of code per card, and then you'd uh, put your name and uh, a rubber band around it. It would be shuttled down to the mainframe computer at the school district headquarters. And you waited two or three days for it to get runs at some slack time overnight and then sent back to you. So uh, that was my kind of first real exposure to programming. Um, being sort of impatient even then, I got a, uh, an account at the University of Washington uh, in Seattle it's at its academic computing center, and uh, where I paid real dollars and, uh, and did programming on my, uh, on my own behalf. And I uh, actually put up a card. I, I got people to pay me money to do uh, computer consulting for them. And um, that led me to Northwestern, actually. There were some programs there. There were copyright Northwestern. Um, at Northwestern, there was a, um, we had a, a control data corporation mainframe. And it was the same, uh, same manufacturer as the University of Washington had. That was a, a more unusual, high-end scientific um, uh, computer. It had 60-bit words, which people out there will think is pretty odd since it's not a power of two. And um, the summer before my senior year, uh, there was a, a class on the operating system that ran this computer. And the local software engineers um, employed by the Academic Computing Center at Northwestern had made so many changes to the standard CDC operating system that when a big new operating system release came out, it was going to take too long for them to integrate that. So they kept their version going, and they would steal source code from the newer version. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was my first sort of experience. And so I spent, um, I think it was 10 weeks, three hours a day, five days a week, learning the internals of this operating system. And so um, I actually got to hack on the operating system, make some changes. There was all this de- uh, dead start time and... And so when I got to IBM, the first job, the first thing I did, they, they wanted me to take a, a programming class. And I was like, I think I can learn that myself. We finally, we finally um, <clears throat> agreed that I take their uh, MVS system programmer training course. And that was an eight-week course on the internals of their fancy MVS operating system. And so um, I'd taken operating system classes both as an undergrad and a, a grad student. So I kind of wanted to work on, on, 
operating systems or user interface or programming languages. And uh, I ended up getting hired into what became the OS2 uh, team at Microsoft. So you started on the OS2 team, not on DOS? Correct. It was called MT-DOS, Multitasking DOS. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was, uh, the original goal there was to run multiple DOS applications uh, to, to, to multitask them in 640K of memory. On, a, on an 8086, um, which proved to be a little challenging. So the the OS2 project is a little star-crossed. Um, did you work on that all the way through its sort of denouement, as it were? Yeah, so it, it, uh, it, it was sort of just getting started when I started in June uh-huh. of 1985, and, um, and I was on that for five and a half years until we divorced IBM. So it, it had, we signed what we called a joint development agreement with IBM, in the fall of 1985, and there was a division of labor, and they worked on some bits, and we worked on some bits. And I, <clears throat> I like to describe that as a, a cross-country car ride, where uh, let's say you and I get in the car, and we're driving from LA to the East Coast, and it works fine for the first few thousand miles. But as we get closer to the finish line, you know, it turns out I'm actually trying to go to New York City, and you're trying to go to Miami. And so Microsoft wanted to build really, you know, what Windows became. And IBM just wanted to build a, an operating system that was an appendage to their, uh, their mainframe operating systems that would make PCs be better mainframe clients. And culture clash as well between the you know, Microsoft people and IBM people? Uh, vastly. So, uh, as I said, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft, well, when I started at IBM uh, back in 82, when I was an employee for IBM, uh, it was 364,000 people. When I joined Microsoft in June of 85, it was not quite 800 people. And uh, IBM had been around for uh, uh, 60, 80 years, and Microsoft was about 10 years old. Um, you also worked on the first production LAN, is that correct? Yeah, well, so I <clears throat> we start, we were working on OS2, and um, so back then... You know, today we're 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 spoiled with you know fifty or hundred megabit a second download speeds, um, you know, with Wi-Fi even. Uh, so so back when I was using computers uh, in the nineteen seventies, uh, if you wanted to connect to a computer remotely, you used a modem, uh, which would uh, connect at either one hundred uh, baud or three hundred baud, which is to say ten characters per second or ten bytes per second or thirty bytes per second. Now. Um, uh, computers had in the mid '80s they had uh, serial ports, and you could establish a serial port connection between two computers uh, with a hard wire. So you wouldn't do this over long distances. And the maximum speed was 19.2, so so uh, 19.2k baud, 19.2 thousand bits per second, or about 1900 bytes per second. Um, and uh, so the way we did source code control, so a bunch of us are working together to build OS2. We're checking out files, editing them, checking them back in. Uh, that source code control is done on a mainframe computer, a, a DEC mainframe. And, uh, and the way we uh, got our files between our PCs where we're using editing and building tools um, and to do source control on the mainframe was to use the FTP program, File Transfer Protocol, an old Unix utility, to uh, transfer the files <clears throat> up to the mainframe and, and back down. And, um, and so that 19.2 is, is not too fast. And so I thought um, that if we had a local uh, file server with all the files, people could just copy them over in the morning to get the latest files. 
And so um, there was a group next door that was building NSNet, Microsoft Network. And, um, and so I got some um, building utility guys to help me wire up some coaxial cables and put jacks in the walls. And I got network cards for everyone. And so the, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us working on OS2, I built, I got two um, IBM ATs, which were uh, 286, uh, 80286 uh, Intel chips, um, you know, a megabyte or two of RAM, uh, eight megahertz clock speeds, and they had whopping 20 megabyte hard drives. And, uh, and I called one of them Hagar for the cartoon character, and the other one was called Opus. Don't, I don't remember why we needed two. And that, so that was the first, uh, as far as I know, that was first production LAN where, where we were doing source control um, that way. So is, is that sort of what maybe sparks you down the road of, of networking and, and those sorts of technologies? Or I don't think so. I mean, I think the, the you know, when we talk about Internet Explorer, my interest there was more um, as a an application platform, mm-hmm. a delivery platform, not, well, then, not networking particularly. Let me let me take a, a a different angle at it. Do you remember the first time um, encountering the web, not the internet, but the web itself? Yeah. So uh, I it was June of 1994, and I was in a friend's office, and he was uh, surfing the web with this Mosaic web browser, which. Uh, had been built uh, coincidentally at University of Illinois, um, and it was a Windows uh, graphical web browser. So that was the first time I saw the web. Um, at this point, obviously, uh, Microsoft is is you know ramping up to to put out Windows ninety five. All the development work is going on on Windows ninety five. What are what is your job? Um, what are you working on for the Windows ninety five effort? Great. So, so I'd done the OS2 work. I did some early work for what became Windows 95, but it was too early. Uh, then I really was kind of desperate to just ship something that customers would use. And uh, so I worked on MS-DOS 6 and 6.2. That was really satisfying. It was a very small team, and we, we added some great features, and customers uh, loved that. Um, and then I did a, a brief um, a setup data compression project. If you've seen uh, .cab files, mm-hmm. cabinet files, that was my idea, and, and I got to write some code for that. Then um, during that summer of 1994, Brad Silverberg, who was running the DOS and Windows team, had asked a, a, a small group of us to start thinking about uh, what to do after Windows 95. And we didn't exactly know when Windows 95 was going to ship. That's the name we finally called it. It was codenamed Chicago. Chicago at that point. So, um, and so um, I was looking at a bunch of things and, and I was looking at computer use in the home. Um, so I saw the, the, I saw the web. And so back then, uh, if you had a dial-up connection, you might have had a 9600 baud modem. And, uh, but but uh, at Microsoft, you could ask the, uh, the IT group to put another uh, uh, jack in your wall and connect you up to the uh, open internet at a one megabit a second uh, speed. So I actually had uh, what today sounds like a sluggish speed, but compared to the, the speeds of the time, I had a very high bandwidth uh, internet connection uh, that was always connected. I didn't have to wait for modem dialing. Um, and so it, you start to formulate the idea that maybe as a part of this next project, this whatever comes after Windows 95, that there needs to be a browser component to it is that what the thinking is yeah so uh so i saw the internet and i i started to realize um even with all the very rudimentary applications that were available that um that uh that html and http and web browsers and web servers that that was going to be a powerful uh platform so 
I actually started, um, so one thing I actually explored as a project was to uh, what I called at the time content index the internet. So the, um, there was a sort of an advanced team that um, had this content indexing demo where they had the entire NT source code base, which was pretty large. And the state of the art at the time was you would have a command line tool and you, would, you wanted to find all references to some uh, procedure name or some variable, and you would run this grep or fgrep tool and it would, it would uh, as you waited, open every file, search through the file, and try to find hits. And so it was very sluggish. And so their demo was that they, they created an index beforehand and so that the, you could search for something and they'd immediately give you results. Today we go, oh, that sounds like Google or Bing mm -hmm. or anything else, but this was, you know, this was 20 years ago. So, um, so one idea I had as a project was to go content index the whole internet, mm -hmm. right? Which wasn't very large at that time. Right. It, it would be doable. Oh, very doable. Extremely doable. Yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, and so then I went looking to understand what the this content index technology was, um, and it was. Uh, it, it turned out that the whole architecture was the data, the indices, and the query response all happened on one machine. And so the idea of using that technology as structured to index the internet with, with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of machines. Uh, so I kind of gave that project up and uh, decided to go, uh, that, to agitate to go build a web browser. Do you know whatever became of that project? Uh, well, nothing ever happened. It was my right. exploration. And right. I never, that, we can talk about another thing I tried to do uh, a year later. Okay. So you start to agitate for um, a browser component. Is is your idea that it be part of the of, of Windows itself or a separate client that that's a Microsoft client but not as a part of Windows? Well, I'm so I'm working in the Windows ninety five team. Right. So my, my idea was this is a part of Windows. Mm -hmm. And if you if you look at the state of the of the operating system marketplace in the late uh, in late nineteen ninety four, IBM actually ended up shipping. So we divorced IBM in in nineteen ninety. And uh, and so they continued on with the development of this OS 2 2.0, which was to run on 32-bit Intel processors. So they actually announced and then shipped OS 2 2.0, OS 2, sorry, excuse me, they called it OS 2 Warp 3.0, trying to trade on the uh, Star Trek branding. And uh, it included a web browser, uh, a dial-up internet access kit, a, a TCP IP stack, and, and all the other stuff, goodies you need to access the internet. And uh, Apple, which was our other largest competitor back then with their Mac OS, had, had announced, but not shipped, that their next Mac OS would include a web browser and internet connectivity. So in the fall of 1994, Microsoft was behind uh, its two largest operating system competitors. In fact, IBM crowed a lot about that in their advertisements. Because at this point, um, DOS does not have uh, any internet protocols. Uh, uh, MS-DOS does not, and, and the current version of Windows at the time was Windows 3.1, right. which had shipped in right. uh, 1992. Right. Uh, and then there's a, a next version of Windows called Windows for Workgroups, Wasn't there... which shipped in 1993, if I remember correctly. Because one of those, there was some sort of uh, add-on that, that, that added uh, internet protocols at some point, right? Well, there were a lot of third-party okay. uh, products, and so... So one of the challenges is, um, so back, again, if we cast our mind back to the, the uh, 1994, so there were a bunch of different uh, companies who had built um, internet access packages. Mm -hmm. And so to dial to connect to the internet, you had to have uh, some kind of dialing software. 
you had to have a, uh, a TCP IP stack, that's the transmission control protocol slash internet protocol. Um, you also had to have a sockets API, and that was a, a layer above TCP IP that made it easy for C kind of programs to, to connect to uh, uh, internet servers. And then you often would have an FTP client, you'd have a, maybe you'd have a web uh, client, uh, you might have a gopher client, you might have an IRC client, there are a variety of these other there was uh, that one applications. Um, there was that one company that sold internet in a box. Correct. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that been, might have been Spry. If Spry. I'm correct. Right. Yep. Yeah. Which was coincidentally in Seattle. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so what you're saying is that initially the agitation has to be integrating these protocols now into Chicago. Is that is that the initial? correct? Yeah. Okay. Because because from an ease of use point of view, and because our our two largest competitors in the operating space. Uh, had already shipped with or announced that they were having integrated internet access. Mm -hmm. So, so where, um, so where in the summer of '94, I don't know that it was obvious that that we needed a web browser and internet access. By by October of '94, it was very apparent to me and several other people that we needed to rush and get that done for Windows 95. Right, and that becomes, um, you know, almost a, a, a company-wide change, the, you know, the famous internet tidal wave memo and things like this. Well, I don't think company-wide is a very fair statement. I think okay. there were a set of people in the Windows team, um, Windows 95 team, that, that wanted to do this. Um, there were other groups at Microsoft who had other ideas, and um, probably a topic we'll come back to. There, there was this tension between sort of Windows and, and Office and existing Microsoft products and technologies and the threat that the Internet posed uh, to, to Windows and Office. But the, I mean, isn't that somewhat of the, what was responsible for the delays to Windows 95 eventually launching is that at some point the decision is made, all right, we can't launch our, our big flagship next, next generation OS without fully... Uh, integrating internet stuff is that uh, that's false okay so yeah so uh, you know there's a lot of stuff you read in the press and there were lawsuits later of course the you know the Department of Justice sued Microsoft uh, for antitrust uh, violations so so um, when you're building a complicated piece of software like Windows 95 uh, it, it ends up having there's a sort of a natural cycle to things and and you've got all these features you want and then you're 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 writing them and you're testing them with users and you're debugging and 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 it there's sort of a natural cycle of these things. So, in uh, the summer of 1994, there was some hope that Windows 95 would would be Chicago. Let's call it Chicago, mm -hmm. would ship before the end of 1994. Well, that didn't happen, and uh, so I I was asked to to take over leadership of the Internet Explorer, uh, what became the the Internet Explorer project. There had been somebody working on it sort of part time, but really not making progress. So so I got started on that in earnest in very early October of 1994. And and so the first thing was like, you know, what should it be and when can we get it done? And uh, and there's this idea, I don't know if you've heard the term schedule chicken mm -hmm. before, where, you know, so a chicken is like, you know, two cars driving at each other who turns off first. That's that's pretty gory. In schedule chicken, it's it's this sort of uh you know who's going to get done, or who's going to be responsible for delaying, and and so I think the Windows ninety five project was moving along at, at kind of its natural rate, and I was trying as as hard as I could with my team to get 
um, Internet Explorer done in time so we could ship simultaneously with Windows 95. Um, so in early, so we, we licensed this uh, source code from Spyglass, which had in turn licensed it from the Mosaic Project at the University of Illinois that I mentioned earlier. And so I had, um, I quickly grabbed seven people. And so um, we licensed the code, we, uh, we licensed code in late, late 94. I remember it was September, or sorry, December 18th. We, you know, get the source code from, uh, from Spyglass. So I give the team two weeks to study the code and, uh, and maybe take a little time off for the holidays. And um, we met back on something like January 4th of, of 1995. And I, uh, I, I wrote a chart on the whiteboard. And I wrote every developer's name as a column. And I wrote eight weeks down as the rows. So I had this eight, four by eight matrix. And then I asked, uh, I said, who has the most important thing that we have to get done before we ship? And I don't remember what it was, but I wrote that thing in that box. And so we filled out the box. And so we had an eight week plan. So that's all of January and all of February. <clears throat> and um, so we did all those things. It turns out we got a few more things done besides that. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's um, uh, February or March, and we're going to have this professional developers conference. And we're going to um, uh, show off. Uh, no, sorry. Wait, this is 1995. Well, I'm ahead of here. Okay, so it's 1995. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're trying to figure out when we're going to have a first beta test release and when can we get done. So um, uh, at the same time, so now sort of the ship schedule for Windows 95 is settling in. We're sort of getting this sense it's going to be done kind of midsummer. And uh, so then the question is, will, will Internet Explorer be done in time to be in the retail upgrade box? So there are three, there are three different uh, shipping criteria or shipping vehicles. So... <clears throat> So we had to get a binary release of Windows 95 that we could send to our OEM customers, Compaq, IBM, HP, Gateway, all the rest. And they needed that so they could test that, make sure their device drivers worked, and then they could pre-install it in their computers and ship. Okay, so that was one deliverable. A second deliverable was a nice shiny box that we could uh, send out to retail stores and consumers, mostly, but people at businesses as well could buy a retail upgrade package and in their existing PC, probably running Windows 3.0 or 3.1 or even MS-DOS, um, they could pump in the floppy disks or the CD-ROM and install Windows 95. Right. Okay. Now, we'd already decided to uh, have this thing called the Plus Pack. And the idea was to put a set of features in there that, that um, would enhance Windows 95 for people who had faster processors, maybe more memory, um, maybe fancier displays. And um, so that was a third uh, ship vehicle that was available. And so I was, Brad Silverberg asked me, well, so are, can you be sure that Internet Explorer be ready in time to be in the retail upgrade box and for the OEMs? And, uh, and the, the challenge was that we're going to have millions of copies of these packages. So we had to make the artwork for the boxes and start printing them so we could assemble all these things. And so out of a, an abundance of caution, I said, let's put it in the plus pack because I think I can be undone in time. And, uh, but, but if I'm not, then we don't delay the retail upgrade the release. And so, um, and so as, as the development schedules worked out, um, so we were not the long tent in the pole, uh, 
So, uh, so we actually got done in time with quality. And so it could have actually been in the retail upgrade. Mm-hmm. And, but we'd already made the packaging decision. And the, pack, the plus pack was now, you know, hey, with internet access and all this stuff. So, so that sort of ship had sailed. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it did make the release for the uh, OEM. So every uh, computer that came pre-installed with Windows 95 had Internet Explorer. Let me let me cycle back for a second. Um, so, when when you decide to do um, the browser because of um, because of time constraints, you know that you, you you need to license. You can't you can't do it from scratch. Is that? Yeah, I think we were we yeah we wanted to we wanted to get something done as quickly as possible, and so we explored. Um, there was a company called Booklink Technologies. We talked to them. Um, we we wanted to um, we wanted to license we wanted to buy their company and get their their code, um, and AOL. AOL swept them up. Yeah, so we were we there was some goofy thing where we were waiting for the MSN guys to do the deal and they weren't so I don't know. So um, anyway, as a, so it actually turned out I think well that we <clears throat> we licensed the Spyglass Mosaic code because that was at the time that was the web browser that had the most uh, usage share. So from a compatibility point of view, it was a great place for us to start. Um, but obviously, you guys are aware that Netscape is getting started at this point. Was there any consideration of... Well, not obviously. Okay. Okay, so so what we know today is Netscape started in April of 1994. Um, I started the Internet Explorer effort in, uh, in early October of 94, and then Netscape suddenly appears right at the end of October... Um, you know, uh, we're you know here we here it is Halloween today. I think it might have been a, a roughly Halloween mm-hmm. in 1994, and so we hadn't had a clue about them. And so all of a sudden they they post their beta, and we are behind. So then that at at that point you've got to pull the trigger, and so then um, going with the existing Mosaic Gold Standard makes the most sense to you guys, is what you're saying. Well, it was the path of least resistance. I don't know what I uh, I delegated to Thomas Reardon, who was one of the program managers on my team to go find us a source code to start with so we didn't mm-hmm. have to start from scratch and he may have looked at other things but that's that ended up be the, the thing we chose yeah. so uh do you launch a downloadable beta of uh, of internet explorer at any point yeah so we i think our first beta was april of 1995 mm-hmm. it, it seems to me um and that 1.0 would would it be fair to describe it as um as good as you can get to, to at least get something out into the market. Yeah, our, our goal. Uh, well, we did maybe a little bit better than that. Okay. Uh, so we when we uh, so the the uh, the code complete golden date for Windows ninety five was uh, I think it was January uh, sorry July fourteenth of nineteen ninety five, and uh, and then we have a a fancy product launch. Um, you know, with the big tent, and I think Jay Leno came, and mm-hmm. and um, and that was uh, August twenty fourth, so kind of six weeks later, and um, so so we got uh, so our our goal was to get a, a capable browser done that was included that would uh, match up uh, against Netscape where it, where it could. So um, there were some things that Netscape was ahead of us because they this was our one release and they'd already done a. Uh, had a beta, I think, of their 2.0 release, and so they had a few features that we did not have. Um, and so, but there were a couple things we did with progressive rendering and Windows integration that 
that uh, that Netscape didn't have. But but in terms of uh, user adoption, you know, not very many people were using uh, IE1. Right. Um, and again, I'm going to back up on one detail. Um, in terms of going with the browser as as the main, what would become the main client for Microsoft on the web, was there conflict within with with say the Word team? Because you know, there's a lot of different features inside Microsoft that are integrating internet features at this point. And so, it, you know, Word would be a logical candidate to be creating things like web pages and things like this. That's a great question. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's easy when we look back. We there's there's massive survivor bias, right? So you see all the things that actually happened and not the not the attempts that failed. So, um, so the Word group actually built this really fascinating thing called uh, Word Internet Assistant, and. It was a uh, plug into Word. And so the Word group, if you have a Word processor, you look at a web page and you look at a Word document and go, oh, you know, a, a web page is kind of a crummy Word document. So, so they built this Word Internet Assistant, which had um, uh, this uh, HTTP protocol and par HTML parser. And so they, they could read a web page, turn it from HTML into the internal Word format, and then have Word display that. So. Um, so they actually built that, and it sort of worked. Mm -hmm. uh, the difficulty was it was very slow, and and um, uh, HTML has a different quality in terms of its structure than a Word document. And so there were some things, even with that early HTML format, that Word literally couldn't render correctly. Um, so that was one attempt. There was a, uh, another attempt. There was a uh, an email client group, uh, which I think think is what became Outlook, but it's possible it was some other group. And they, they thought that the, um, that, uh, the web was somehow a subset of, of uh, email. So they wanted to build the web browser. So there was this kind of um, sort of territorial, sort of political uh, 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 struggle for this. And my point of view was that, that um, and we haven't talked about my, my memo I wrote in May of 1995, we should probably talk about that. Um, but, but my point of view is that the web is a platform for application development and that we needed a, the world's best web browser that did an awesome job of, of, uh, of downloading and managing and displaying web pages and that it had to be very special purpose built just for that. And so I had a pretty strong opinion about that. I'm kind of a stubborn guy. Um, and my managers, uh, you know, John Ludwig, who worked for Brad Silverberg, who worked for Paul Moritz, who, who worked for um, Bill Gates... Um, at least up through Paul Moritz, all thought that was a good idea too. So I ended up getting the sort of uh, support within the organization to to go charge ahead on that. So is there also thoughts that you know the, the standards, even though HTML and the standards that existed at the time were still kind of primitive, still feeling like this is what's going to win out. So we need to we need to have a horse in this race as well. Well, by 1994, Microsoft's a larger place and. Smart technical people, um, you know, none of us were born with crystal balls, mm -hmm. and uh, and so smart technical people can uh, legitimately disagree about what they think the future looks like, mm -hmm. and so there were a lot of different technology threads um, that were going on, and so if you, so my view, so I, <clears throat> I'd been having all these thoughts uh, starting in the fall of 1994, and I started writing them down, and by 
um, May of 1995, I, I decided to publish a memo, and that wasn't my job. My job was like I, to build software. And uh, Nathan Mervold, who you, you mm -hmm. may know, his job was to write a memo once a month. I mean, that was his job to write these really thoughtful, far, far-looking memos. Um, but anyway, so for whatever reason, I decided I, was, I had this very clear idea about the web as a platform that would, that would challenge and eventually surpass Windows. And so um, I wrote my ideas down because I wanted to convey that to, to other people at Microsoft. And so there were some people that thought the future was writing Windows applications. And, and um, so when I, when I wrote in May of 1995, and we haven't shipped Windows 95 yet, which is going to be our first 32-bit Windows Right now, everybody's got you know 64-bit processors on their, you know, iPhones and iPads and, and Android devices. But, but <clears throat> we were going from the 16-bit world to the 32-bit world back then. Um, so it, you could imagine that Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer weren't very happy for me to say that the future was the web and not writing Windows applications. So um, in fact, around this time, maybe maybe in the next six months, there, sometime in 1995. Um, Bill was like, don't you see how crummy, you know, the web is? And this reminds us of the mainframe, right? Do you remember how shitty the mainframe was? And I said, well, uh, yes, I, I use those mainframe terminals too, but, but, uh, PCs are a lot more capable terminals and the application architecture where you have all the smarts and the data on the server and you can keep everything up to date. I thought that was a, that was a more, uh, powerful application platform as opposed to, you know, writing VB applications or writing Windows apps. We had to distribute these things and keep the protocols in sync and and all that. So there were there were there was no uniformity of thought about uh, this, and there were a lot of people, including Bill, who thought that Windows was the future and was going to be all this these Windows machines. and And the the idea that the web would be a platform, he was not so enthusiastic about. Okay, th that comes up so often that that a lot of people at the time, one of the reasons um, maybe some people were slow to realize that the web was the next big thing was because to, to a lot of people, it looked like technology that was not quite ready for prime time. When you've got the low bandwidth, you've got, it's not like HTML at this point is a really sophisticated, um, you know, technology. So I feel like it's come up so many times that that people at the time thought, well, yeah, this is the revolution that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen with this rinky-dink web and this HTML and, and HTTP and things like that. Do you feel like that that was true at the time? Well, again, a lot of people had different opinions about that. So my, my personal view was, um, so, so uh, I'd done my first programming with punch cards in two or three day turnaround time in 1976. I worked at IBM in 1985 and uh, seeing that kind of technology. And then here I was uh, in 1995, so another 10 years after, um, um, after coming to Microsoft, and uh, PCs had already gotten you know, faster and cheaper and more capable. And so, so, so my view was that the technology trends were such that, that um, uh, bandwidth speeds would improve, memory and CPU speeds would continue to improve, displays would continue to improve, and um, and so, and that the the applications that people are going to care about, because I'd gone and sort of thought about homes, and back then only about a third of homes in the United States had a had a computer, and so so my view of the trajectory was that that these uh, content and entertainment kinds of applications were going to be 
very popular to, for almost everyone and that the technology would improve um, to support that. And so, so one thing that, you know, you might ask, well, why did the internet sort of take off in 1995, right? So in 1994, if you'd looked at, at newspaper articles or magazine articles or TV shows, you wouldn't see a, a, a web address anywhere. And by 1996, you start seeing web addresses in, you know, advertisements in, 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 on the TV everywhere. And so my view of what happened is that, that you had prices for electronics dropping, whether that's uh, modems or, or computers, the, you know, the amount of RAM, the size of hard drives, the size of displays. And the prices came down enough that the market of people who could afford to buy these things increased, right? And back then still in 1995, you've got modem pools, you've got AOL and CompuServe and other online services that aren't the internet. And they have these modem pools spread around the country and people have like these 4,800 baud or 9,600 baud modems that they want to get online and do stuff with. And you see that AOL is growing and CompuServe is growing. So there's a, you see this growing need that people want to be online and want to be connected. And um, so for me, <clears throat> seeing all those things together, um, uh, I predicted, turns out, I guess I was right, that, that the internet was going to be powerful and was going to be big and that these things would coalesce, would get better, would get more refined. Well, and and the the upgrade cycle that Windows ninety five sort of kickstarted, in terms of you know you you didn't see ads like dude you're getting a Dell you know in the early nineties like the idea so many people so many homes probably got their first computers with Windows ninety five at this point too. Yeah, I think that's right, and so it's it's um, you know if you look at at in more recent memory we've seen the um, adoption first of of cell phones right and then. And then the switch to what we now call smartphones. Mm -hmm. And so um, I got my first uh, cell phone in 1994. It was, I think, a Nokia, one of those folding things. And mostly because I had young children and my wife and I wanted to keep in, in touch with each other. Um, I got my first smartphone in 2001. It was a BlackBerry. Um, and uh, actually, it wasn't a phone. It was a smart device which would synchronize your calendar, your email, and your contacts. They had their own private wireless network. Uh, it was very highly optimized, though slow. And um, and you, but you couldn't make phone calls with it, right? It was just an and email it, email device. It was, and it was email, calendar, calendar and yeah. contacts, and that was a really powerful thing. And um, uh, there were less than a million Blackberries uh, installed base at that time. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, in the subsequent time, we've we've had. Um, uh, you know, the rise of iPhone, the rise of Android, you know, BlackBerry just went, right? They couldn't keep up with the shifting technologies. Uh, Nokia did the same thing, right? And so um, that sort of shift to mobile um, parallels in some ways uh, this, these platform transitions from, you know, the with PCs arising and then with, with the web and the internet arising for, for PCs. Right. So 95 is just this per perfect storm of of online sort of coming of age, the computers getting truly mainstreamed and, and then suddenly people having this, this yearning to, to try out online and things like that. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, so getting back to, to Internet Explorer itself. So you get 1.0 out the door. It goes in with the plus pack. Do you immediately start developing 
I, I think I even read that you start developing 2.0 and 3.0 simultaneously. Correct. Yeah. So, so I had I had written this this uh, memo. The web is the next platform, and if you Google on the web, you can mm -hmm. find a copy of this uh, because the Department of Justice uh, uh, discovered that. Right. I'll, so, I'll put a link yeah. to it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so in there, I had written the set of features I thought that we should have in in Internet Explorer that would ship in. Uh, by June of 1996, and um, and so so my idea was so we had to compete with Netscape on the one hand, um, but we also had these more aggressive set of features we wanted to achieve, and so I I literally took my four senior most senior engineers from the IE1 team, and as soon as we shipped um, uh, as soon as we shipped the uh, IE1 in in July of 95, I gave them four months to do IE2. And so they did uh, catch-up kind of features. So they had uh, HTML tables was super important because that was this kind of thing where you could really control layout. A few other uh, Netscape enhancements. We we added some goodies ourselves. Uh, HTTP cookies was another Netscape feature we needed to add um, so that people could revisit a site and the site would remember them. And uh, and then SSL, secure sockets layer. And that was the HTTPS uh, thing where you can have a secure um, uh, uh, web uh, session, which allows for commerce and all sorts of <coughs> a other lot things. of things. Yes. Exactly, yeah. So um, and and in fact, I the SSL I had an intern from MIT do that code, and there was the crypto code we actually had from someplace else, and um, and then we did a few kind of catch up things. So the other thing that happened in the summer of 1995 is that Sun launched Java, which was this. That it started as a, a this green I think programming language for cell phones or something, but they decided to repurpose it for the web, and so they had these demo pages um, that had all these these sort of dorky Java apps if, if I can't say that, <laughs> and um, and so then so I I said well you know we could we could add some really simple features that would make pages that looked as dorky as those Java apps right, mm -hmm. not that you could write some big complicated thing so. So we added this marquee tag. That was my idea, where you could have a little scrolling text. And someone just wrote up the little Windows code to do that. And uh, we had background sounds. So you could go to a page and play a, a sound. And you could have inline movies, inline AVIs. And the ability, multi, uh, the Windows already had multimedia features to play um, uh, music files and to play uh, uh, video files. And then we did this thing called VRML, uh, Virtual Reality Markup Language. And the idea was... Uh, well, it was this evolving standard of, of where you would describe this 3D space in a sort of textual file, and like HTML, and and then there'd be a viewer, and so then you could wander through this kind of 3D space. And so we did that sort of speculatively because we could. I had one engineer who worked on that, and it was sort of a cool demo thing. So those were that was IE2. So we did that in in uh, four months and shipped that uh, November 17th of 1995. Wow. So is is part of this that uh, now now you're focused on achieving parity and then surpassing what Netscape is doing? Yeah. So we had two threads. So one was like catch up with the important thing. So it was so the really key things were uh, HTML tables because it gave you this nice layout control that people wanted, um, cookies so that sites could remember who you were, uh, and then SSL so you could do uh, uh, secure transactions. Uh, Easily, so that was that was that. But then IE three was the bulk of the team, and that was our, our leapfrog effort to get ahead. And so, some of the some of the things that that three brings in are well, it's a long list of yeah. things. I don't want to I don't know if I want to bore you. So, so there were a few catch up things. So 
So we had to implement Java um, as, a, as a parody thing. And, and there were people inside Microsoft who thought that was a horrible idea. Bill Gates, uh, 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 not the least among them. So um, you, if you Google sort of Java, Bill Gates, Ben Slifka, you'll find some nice savory sound bites. Um, so, uh, so we had to implement Java. We had to do HTML frames. And, uh, and that's a feature which today I think you don't see very much use of. And, but it was a thing that people thought were, was interesting at the time. And then um, uh, Netscape introduced a client-side scripting language, which they called JavaScript, which really didn't have anything to do with Java at all. Uh, they just liked to sort of attach the name to that. And, uh, and so, uh, so those were important catch-up things that we needed to do. So the, um, uh, so one the interesting dynamic that's going on right now is so Sun announces Java, and Netscape um, is trying to do everything internet. And so they've grown a lot. They've, I think they've IPO'd by this time. They've got a lot of money. So they're, they're scurrying after every possible thing, content management and publishing and, and application servers. They're doing lots of stuff. And uh, my little team doesn't have to worry at, about that at all. We have, I have one little goal in life is to build the world's best web browser. So the Java guy, so the Netscape guys, <clears throat> decide that, Java, that Net, Net, Netscape Navigator 3 will be written in Java, right? And it's almost this kind of religious strategic choice that, that Netscape decides, you know what, we're going we're gonna to partner with our buddies at Sun who built this Java language and we've drunk the Java Kool-Aid, you're going to write it once and it's going to run everywhere. So we're going to go build uh, you know, Netscape 3 web browser in Java. So the, I think the code name was Java Gator, if that makes sense. Uh, and uh, and uh, I was really focused on time to market and efficiency and and um, and Java was very slow. Uh, it was a, a very slow thing. So, and in fact, Netscape Navigator was an MFC application. So MFC was the Microsoft Foundation classes. It was a set of um, runtime libraries for C++ whose idea was it to make it easy to write Windows applications. And so there'd be all this standard stuff that the class libraries would do. And so your Windows app would be uh, easier to write and faster write as a result. One small problem is that the MSC libraries took a megabyte of runtime. Now today when you have gigabyte or two gigabytes of RAM, you don't think about that, right? But, but when you have a four megabyte 386 machine, you know, or, or a four megabyte, you know, 486 machine, a megabyte of runtime is a lot of space. So, uh, so we did not use MFC at all. We were a very to the metal uh, C uh, application, maybe some C++. So, um, so my focus was building a, a, a world-class uh, web browser. Now, we're part of the Windows team. <clears throat> and uh, the responsibility for Windows is to provide services uh, for application authors. And so on the one hand, you want to make it easy for end users to use Windows and to find files and to print and set up new devices, all those things. But you also want to make it easy for application authors to write Windows applications. And so um, as, the, as the internet is blossoming, we start to get lots of requests from application authors. So application authors want an HTML rendering engine that they can put in their application. They want uh, a JavaScript uh, engine or a VB script engine that they can use to uh, uh, allow their application to be scriptable. Um, they want uh, their uh, they want an HTTP stack, so they don't have to worry about that, right? So there were a set of features <clears throat> that that were in the web browser, 
that uh, these application authors wanted. So, um, so we had already had the idea to break Internet Explorer up into a set of components. And so, and this is a thing that gets talked about in the, in the uh, antitrust uh, case. And uh, so, but our motivation was we're part of Windows. These are features that people want. So if you think about uh, TurboTax, for example, they have to render tax forms. And they said, you know, if you would do a few things for us and give us an HTML rendering engine, put that into Windows, we could use that to render tax forms and we wouldn't have to write all that code, right? So, uh, so we started that work of breaking it up uh, into components, to breaking Internet Explorer up into components. And, um, and so that was, that was an important part of the effort. Now, um, that comes into play because um, there's another memo, I don't know if you've seen this memo, uh, uh, how to get to, 30, get to 30% market share in 12 months. I don't know if you've seen some reference to that. <clears throat> so, the, so, so IE1 and IE2 have one or 2% usage share if you look at, at web logs on common websites back in, in 95 and even in early 96. So, so we decide that um, we need to partner with some other folks and, and one obvious partner would be AOL. And so they're the leading online uh, service at the time. And AOL uh, you know, wants to be relevant in the, in the internet era and people are all talking about AOL is gonna be roadkill on the internet, mm -hmm. right? I think Mark Andreessen might even mm -hmm. have been quoted as saying that. So, um, so uh, we go talk to AOL and, um, and that's a kind of a funny conversation, right? Because Microsoft had launched this MSN online service, mm -hmm. which is basically, you know, if I could say this gently, sort of a, a crummy clone of AOL. And that had been launched in August of 1995 along with, uh, along with um, Windows 95. And, uh, and MSN is not really getting too many customers. And so, so we, we tell Bill, you know what, we want to license Internet Explorer to AOL help them. And he, he basically does the math and goes, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And um, so because we had componentized Internet Explorer 3, um, AOL was able to integrate that web, those web, web browsing technologies into their existing Windows client. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had one and a half developers assigned to make sure that that worked really well. And in fact, when, they, when AOL shipped its, um, its client with integrated Internet Explorer, you couldn't tell. Right, mm -hmm. there was no Internet Explorer branding or Microsoft branding anywhere. In fact, reviewers weren't even sure really what was going on. Uh, but that was an important way to increase our our usage base because we, if uh, you know, if you look at Windows phones today, I mean, they have you know almost zero market share. So no one wants to write applications for them, and no one tests to see whether it works. Right, right. So, it's it's the classic: if you can get the market big enough, then developers will write for your platform. Right. Right, or make sure it works, right? right so in exactly. our case, we just want to make sure websites worked on Internet Explorer. So that, that AOL deal, would you say that that was a, a major component of Internet Explorer? It was, it was important, yeah. right? You can't, it's hard, in retrospect, it's hard to know, you know, could you take one thing away, what would have changed? So, so, let me, so let me remind you that the IE3 features that were catch-up with Netscape were Java, running Java applets, uh, HTML frames, and JavaScript. Those are the three that were catch-up things. So there were a few things we did that they didn't do. The componentization was important. Mm -hmm. AOL naturally might have partnered with, with Netscape just as against Microsoft, but the, uh, 
Netscape web browser was a monolithic application. So mm -hmm. Netscape had no ability to, 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 do, to do the integration right. the, the way we had. Okay. So um, so we had all the uh, all the componentization. We added VBScript just for the heck of it because we could. Um, it turns out no one cared about that. Um, CSS. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to get to that. So yeah. probably the most important thing was cascading style sheets, mm -hmm. CSS. So that was an emerging uh, World Wide Web Consortium standard. So we had been active in the World Wide Web Consortium. So this was Tim Berners-Lee coordinating a bunch of folks interested in standardizing and moving the standards and the document formats and the features of the World Wide Web forward. And that's HTTP and HTML and a bunch of other stuff. So this cascading style sheet uh, standard was, was a proposed standard. And, and um, this was the ability to separate sort of content and appearance. And it, it gave you a lot of flexibility. Um, when we had talked to our own content people at Microsoft who were building things like uh, um, the Streets and Trips or um, the, um, the movie Cinemania or the Encarta app, you know, mm -hmm. all these things mm -hmm. that are dead now. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> the internet killed them all. Right. Uh, and, uh, but, but, uh, and, or we talked to outside folks who wanted to build you know, interesting content. They wanted those kind of features. So, um, so IE3 was also on a tight engineering deadline. Um, and so I, um, so Thomas Rudin came to me and said, you know, I think we should really try to do this. And I said, okay, you can, um, you know, take an engineer or two and, uh, write the code, but if def it into the code base, which mm -hmm. is to say mm -hmm. if it was running behind and it wasn't going to be complete or too buggy or something, we could with one compile switch conceptually turn it off mm -hmm. and, and ship without it. Um, and uh, they ended up getting that done in time, and so we were actually the first uh, web browser to ship with CSS support. We also did a couple other things. There was a thing called uh, PIX, the Platform for Internet Content Selection. This was another W3C standard. The idea was that, that websites would label their content, especially sort of adult content or other things, with these very fussy things. Um, turns out no one ever cared about that, but, <laughs> but Never we, heard impl of it. Yeah. we implemented it anyway just because you, know, you can't tell. Uh, we did some accessibility stuff so that people with limited, uh, with vision impairment or hearing impairment, we did some things for them. Um, we implemented the object tag uh, for better or for worse uh, with ActiveX controls and code mm -hmm. downloading and code signing. Uh, we had a, um, an internet adaptation kit so corporations or universities could make a customized version of IE that had their branding on it. There were a bunch of people who wanted that. Um, and we, uh, we did some sign up stuff. So those were, that was kind of, those are the high level features out of, uh, out of IE3. And those are the things that you're saying is the step ahead of Netscape at this point. Correct. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I would say, you know, there was, um, the, uh, cool bar, I didn't talk about that, but there was some of the general user interface that we had on IE, um, the cascading style sheets and, um, and the componentization those were those were kind of the big the big things. So would you say that it is IE3 that starts to reach parity and surpass Netscape in well, terms we, of Well, we won all the reviews. So mm -hmm. if you look at all the reviews and, and again most of these in, uh, 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 magazines and papers don't exist anymore, but if you looked at Infoworld and PC Mag and PC Week and all these other things, so we won all the reviews against uh, Navigator partly because you know, we shipped IE3 and um, and uh, Netscape, when they saw... Uh, so let me back up a moment. So we <clears throat> shipped IE3 in August of 1996. Uh, we had this internet... Um, uh, we had this... We had Microsoft every year-ish would have a, prof a professional developers conference. And the idea was to have... 
developers come in and learn about our latest and greatest stuff. So we had a, our, our internet PDC in, uh, in early March of 1996. So that was the first time we demoed IE3. We demoed our own Microsoft Java VM. We had cloned Sun's Java VM, and our Java VM was faster, more compatible, more scalable, and more reliable than, than Sun's. Um, we, uh, we actually announced the AOL deal, and we actually announced a Sun licensing deal uh, at that PDC. And so I think at that point, my understanding, you could correct me if I'm wrong, is that Netscape tra dumped the Java Gator thing and went back to their old C++ code base and tried to catch up, but they didn't have enough time. And so, uh, so IE3 won all the reviews except PCMag, who admitted we had the best Windows 95 browser, but because we didn't have one on, on uh, Linux or, or you know, Mac or something like that, they, they still gave the nod to, to Netscape. But one of the bigger sort of technology threads and, and market threads that are occurring here is, is, again, this question of platform and application architectures. And, um, you know, back when we were working with IBM in um, the late 80s, um, they had this thing called system application architecture, was, which was their idea about how you could, their customers could write an application once and run it on anything from a, a tiny little PC up to some massively scaled mainframe. Um, I don't think that worked very well. Um, you know, later you had Java. That was this kind of write once, run anywhere thing. We've, I think what we've seen is that Java on the client never really was very interesting to many people, but Java as a server programming language has proven to be popular and somewhat lasting. So <clears throat> Microsoft is, um, uh, you know, in the OS2 era and then in the Windows era and then, and then you know, up coming forward to today, um, it has always been trying to think about what's the programming environment and platform. And so what programming language or languages do you use? How do uh, different um, client and server computers talk to one another? How do you, how do you display information? What's your display uh, format? Um, and do you have one of these or multiple, right? And so you can see, you know, more in the last 10 years, you know, Microsoft tried this Silverlight thing, which was a clone of Flash, basically. Right, and the Flash Player was a another sort of Java-like attempt, in a way, to have a uh, cross-platform runtime where you could write an application once and run it on many different kinds of, of uh, client machines. So, uh, so uh, there were always this, um, there was this sort of continual upwelling of ideas at Microsoft about uh, what this client runtime platform should look like and how it should be composed. So there was a project called Forms Cubed. And the idea, and this is back in the in the mid '90s at Microsoft. And the idea was to to be a next generation version of Visual Basic. So Visual Basic was, um, for for those in your audience maybe too young to know, was a was a, a a had a form construction package where you could drag and drop different controls in, wire them up, and then have code on them, and then they it would talk to some back end service somehow. And um, and so this Forms Cube was was supposed to be this sort of modern version of that, and then um, Adam Bonsworth was leading that effort. And when Adam saw the web, he and then he saw um, there. So there was another emerging um, uh, standard from the World Wide Web Consortium, which we sort of think of as dynamic HTML or the document object model. <clears throat> and here the idea was that uh, you had a, an HTML page sitting in a web browser. And every character, every piece of text, every line, every image, every box, every visual element on the screen was an object. And you could have scripting code that would 
interact with that object. And so you could change the text uh, of a piece of text, you could change the size of a box, you could change the image that was displayed in a particular location, you could even rearrange all the HTML and move that all around. And so, um, uh, and so Adam saw his Forms Cube technology and realized that he could sort of restructure that and turn it into an, an implementation of the of dynamic HTML, and so so he did that. So um, so I stepped down from IE three. I was asked to take on leadership of the Microsoft Java Virtual Machine team in August of nineteen ninety six, just after we shipped IE three, <clears throat> and uh, and then Adam became the leader of the IE four effort, uh, whose primary focus was on implementing dynamic HTML, and that would give a much richer client-side programming experience. And as we see today, you know, if you can't go to any website practically that doesn't have some amount of client-side JavaScript and some of them have immense amounts. I don't know, you know, the Facebook, uh, I, does it have, it might have a million lines of JavaScript on the client. I, I might be exaggerating, mm -hmm. but it has a lot of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. JavaScript. And so that's all the <clears throat> dynamic interactive behaviors that you see are coming from that. And, and so that's... Uh, in a way, that's um, you know seventeen-year-old technology, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so that was IE four. So uh, so I took on the Java IE team. Uh, sorry, the Java Virtual Machine team, and um, and so I led that for um, for the duration of IE four. Mm -hmm. And and it's IE four somewhere. There's a magical time in the life of IE four when Internet Explorer surpasses Netscape in terms of of user. Numbers and yeah, I, like I'm, I'm not sure that I kept track in detail when, when anyone, those numbers. Right. I'm sure someone has. We could right. look those up on right. the web. But, but yeah, I mean, if you look at um, somewhere in '97, '98 time period. Yeah, yeah. and and so, so uh, if you if you look at the capabilities that Internet Explorer 4 had, um, it, it really was quite a, quite far ahead of, of Netscape and other browsers. Right, so, and so, Netscape started to get distracted by other things. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, anyway, so I um, I did the the v, Java VM. Um, in my last couple of years at Microsoft, I worked on the user interface prototype. Some of the less clever ideas I think ended up as as the uh, uh, Office 2007 user interface, if I could say that gently. With the, uh, the ribbon. The ribbon. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay. <clears throat> I still use Office 2003. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, and then I did a, I had a brief stint in MSN, and then it was time for me to leave Microsoft. So in '99, I went to Amazon. And I spent about nine months at Amazon, which was a fascinating experience, an exciting time. Obviously, uh, Amazon was four and a half years old when I started. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my kids were young, and uh, I'd been pretty successful. And so it was time for me to take a step back and, and do other things besides you know, running large engineering teams. Uh, and for instance, going to Northwestern games and things like that. Absolutely. Right? Um, right. Just a couple brief questions about, about the Amazon. Um, I know it was brief. What was, what was your job there? So I, uh, I came in working for the chief information officer, Rick Dalzell, and um, I spent the first couple of months um, walking around, talking to a lot of people, learning a lot about the company. And then, um, and then I had, uh, in January, I got a, what you might call a real job. So I had all the back-end software systems. So it was all uh, supply chain systems, distribution center uh, software, customer service software, and then all the packaged finance, HR, legal systems. Mm -hmm. yeah. But so that's exactly the point when uh, Amazon is is changing from books only to everything. No, they well, they were 
they were already on They're, Books Music Video, BMV right. as they mm-hmm. called it, mm-hmm. and they were getting ready to add a whole bunch of new stuff. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so that was an it was an exciting time at Amazon. Lots of things were going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, to to wrap up our conversation with Internet Explorer, I mean, I, I do want to point out that one of the reasons Internet Explorer overtook Netscape Navigator was because at some point it is the best browser in the world. Um, there's a sense I, when I, I spoke to Chris Wilson and I spoke to Hadi Partovi and they both sort of said from their perspectives, um, what happened to Internet Explorer um, after Netscape sort of after the battles won is that maybe Microsoft took resources away. Maybe they felt like the battle had been won. So there wasn't as much focus on Internet Explorer. Do you feel I know that you had left the company at this point, but when you look at what happened to Internet Explorer subsequently, and maybe this the standard, the quality of the product went down. Was it was it that sort of thing? Maybe taking their eye off the ball, losing the focus on that. I, I think it's a. Uh, I think that's too simplistic a, 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 a conclusion. So, so if you look at you know my own experience, um, I'm a nerd. I mean, I was. I was uh, doing um, assembly language programming in in college. Um, I I had all, it was my hobby. I mean, I spent twenty hours a week my junior and senior year of college uh, programming computers. And um, the Internet Explorer team I grew from zero to sixty seven people in one four and a half month period. Uh, late ninety five, early ninety six, I hired thirty five people in four and a half months. Um, and I was pretty picky about who I hired. Um, there's a book called Competing on Internet Time, which uh, two authors, one at um, uh, Harvard Business School and one at uh, Sloan School at MIT, um, wrote about Netscape and, and its battles on the internet. And um, they actually sent me a copy of the manuscript for review and I gave them detailed feedback. And um, um, what they what they summarized to me, and one of the authors, Michael Cusimano, had written a book called Microsoft Secrets, and so he had spent in the early '90s he spent a, a tremendous amount of time understanding how Microsoft uh, built software back then, and and so they summarized they and I said so so why did Microsoft beat Netscape in the browser wars, and they said well the Microsoft engineers were more skilled, uh, the Microsoft uh, engineering processes were more disciplined, and uh, and Microsoft was more focused on on building a great web browser. And as I alluded to earlier, Netscape was involved in so many different things that I think they took their eye off the ball. So so we got ahead, right? Mm-hmm. And and we had this um, uh, sort of storehouse of talent and technologies, you know, where where uh, Adam Bosworth had this great idea and then was able to repurpose that and implement dynamic HTML very rapidly. So, so then we got ahead, but we still had the fundamental conflict at Microsoft. And one of the key reasons I left in 99 was I thought the internet was the future and Microsoft should really go do the internet. And here's one example I sort of alluded to earlier. Uh, uh, so I tried to, to, search, uh, to build a search engine for the, the web and uh, explored that idea in the, in the summer of 1994. In, uh, Early 1995, I, I, there was a company called, there was actually a research project at Carnegie Mellon University called Lycos. And so I uh, called up Fuzzy, who was the, the professor there who was doing this. And, um, and I ended up licensing the Lycos crawl database uh, for Microsoft. Hmm. I paid 100K a year up front, 100K up front and 100K a year for five years. That was my license deal. 
And I then I gave it to the MSN guys, right, who ran servers and mm -hmm. things like that. And I said, I want you to build a search engine, right? Because mm -hmm. I thought search was going to be important. My mother was a research librarian for 40 some years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she she was dialing up search uh, services with 110 baud acoustic coupler modems in 1970, right? So I had some kind of sort of past exposure to this. And um, uh, so I made the mistake, unfortunately, of asking the MSN guys to build a search engine. I was kind of busy working 80 to 100 hours a week. So I, I worked on Internet Explorer for 22 months. 17 of those months were, I was working between 80 and 100 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So I basically didn't have any <laughs> spare bandwidth to go build a search engine. But I boy, did I want to. There's right? a fascinating alternative alternative history there if that right. had gotten yeah. out the ground. Yeah, right? I don't know if I would have come out with PageRank. Right. That yeah. was a clever idea, too. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, Microsoft had a chance to buy Google um, in 98 or 99 for a, a pretty small amount of mm -hmm. money and, and chose not to. So, so the, the, I left Microsoft 99 because I thought that um, the Internet was a threat to, to, to Windows and was a threat to Office, but that that was the future, and, and Microsoft should go embrace that and do that. Other people thought differently, and you can see what happened, right? And so, um, and that's a classic thing that large companies who have been very successful, um, that's a, a classic trap they fall into. So, um, and so I, I think when you look at what happened to Internet Explorer, um, uh, it, it just was, it wasn't strategic anymore to Microsoft. And, and the Internet still felt like a threat to Windows and Office. And so, unlike, you know, if you're, if you're Google, right, you, you care about, having great web browsers out there to come surf your site so that you can serve up ads, right? Because that's where you make your money. Microsoft doesn't make any extra money from, <laughs> from having, a, you know, a great, um, a great web browser. And, you know, the Microsoft online properties, um, whether that's MSN or Bing or any of those other things, those are, they're not key to the company, right? I mean, that's not, you know, if, if Amazon's website goes down, oh my God, right? Heart attack and Jeff Bezos is, is calling people, it's right? It's like a strategic product versus a core product, right? Yeah, I'm not, maybe, I'm not even sure Bing was strategic. I mean, right. maybe it was, I don't know, but, but um, anyway, so, so I think that was the challenge. I mean, you might ask why, uh, why did Microsoft never come out with a great mobile operating system, right? So, People could say, oh, the right person wasn't in charge or something. But at the end of the day, it's about the economics. So, uh, you know, imagine if you put someone focused like me in charge of building a mobile operating system at Microsoft. It's too late now, by the way. I mean, uh, Apple with iOS, Google with Android, you know, they've got the market share. It seems very hard for anyone else to come out with any compelling offering. But, um, uh, but if I'd been trying to build a great mobile operating system at Microsoft... What would the Windows client team have thought? Right, they'd be pretty unhappy because I'm not going to charge very much money for my mobile OS because the cellular uh, phone manufacturers and the phone carriers aren't going to you know, support you know $200 a uh, you know a license fee, right? right? And so and so if I built a really great mobile operating system at Microsoft, then uh, people like Dell and Compaq and others might have gone, huh? Let's see, we could pay $200 for Windows. Or we could pay ten dollars for Ben's OS. Maybe we'll <laughs> do that, right? So, so that kind of dynamic, which is about market share and money and things, made it very hard for Microsoft to to do anything in the mobile operating system space. Um, it made it hard for them to really be successful online, right? So, um, it's a so I I think it's those dynamics that that are the best explanation for 
why Internet Explorer maybe you know petered out if you want mm-hmm. to say it that way. Mm-hmm. So, well, I always end uh, with a similar question to everybody. I could ask you this in a million different ways. What do you think of how where software has gone? But I'll hearken back to the the memo in '95 that that the web is the next big platform. So it's almost 20 years on from that memo now. The technology, not just the web, everything now. Is it more than you thought it would be in '95? Is it not quite where you thought it would be in '95? What do you What do you think? Twenty years on, where we are now? Well, I I went back and read my uh, 1995 memo just to sort of refresh myself about what my 20 year old idiot self was thinking, and um, and so I got a lot of stuff right in there, I guess. And um, I mean, I th- I think for the most part, I'd say we. Um, in terms of you know laptop desktop computers and and web architectures and websites, I think we've we've done a lot of the things I thought we were going to do. Um, the uh, you know the thing I didn't un- understand or really predict is the rise of mobile and mobile devices. Um, there was a 1991 cover story in Scientific American about tablet devices, and here I have my iPad Air mm-hmm. and my iPhone 5s. Sorry, mm-hmm. no no Microsoft devices, and. Um, and so this this uh, article about ubiquitous computing 24, 23 years ago, um, uh, he got it right about that we would have all these tablets and things and we'd be moving around between them. Um, so so that was interesting. Um, the future, if you think about it, is, you know, so now we've got uh, where we were, people were writing Windows applications and, and Macintosh applications for PCs. Now people are writing iOS apps. And, uh, and Android apps. And um, I've gone back and forth between a Nexus 5 and an iPhone 5S several times for weeks at a time over the last uh, year. And I'd say Android is now caught up with, and in some cases ahead of, uh, of iOS. And, um, and so, uh, you know, Apple is in a tough situation because they've got this premium product. And, um, but it's, you know, Android, it, uh, Apple only has, I think, about 12% sales volume of smartphones today worldwide probably higher in the United States. So if you look in the next five years, it looks like Apple has a hard time trying to keep up with that because uh, the hardware manufacturers will keep innovating, the prices will come down, and it'll be hard for them to have that premium. They're trying as hard as they can, Apple is, to add services. So they've got the iTunes Store, they've got this new Apple Pay thing, they've got this thing where you're supposed to be able to move between different devices and it follows you around. So they're trying as hard as they can to create this ecosystem of services that's really, you know, all-inclusive and, and, and keep you there. So that'll be interesting to see what happens to that. Um, you know, HTML5 is, is a sort of a new thing. Um, again, the promise is there of write once, run anywhere, right, that you could build, you know, sort of rich interactive um, applications with HTML5 and not have to customize it to, to different uh, operating systems. We'll see. That, that never, has never worked yet, but there's always a first time for that. Um, and of course the future, if you look at software, uh, you have all this machine learning and big data stuff that's happening. That'll have dramatic effects on medicine, uh, with things like Dr. Cloud. We saw a news story, uh, yesterday about Google and they want to be able to report, you know, blood levels automatically with little nanobots, um, self-driving cars, uh, 3d printing. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming down the pike, uh, all of which requires, uh, software. And uh, there's, of course, the Internet of Things. People are working on that stuff now. Um, so, uh, um, and lots of people have made predictions about those things, so I won't bother. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, Ben Slivka, though, thank you for thank you for remembering all that stuff for us, and thank you for bringing your notes so that we could we could get it all all the details right. Very good. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian, for having me. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>